The following program is an MLWRadio.com production. Today we're going to be talking about wrestling with debt. Well, when our listeners need to save some money, what do they need to do? Listen, stop asking them fool questions. He ain't got the answer today, baby. Take it from the second most recognizable athlete in the world today. Savewithbruce.com can be beat. They lower your monthly payments by five, four, six, eight, seven hundred dollars a month, baby. You got credit card debt, car loan, a second mortgage. There ain't no problem right here at SaveWithBruce.com. Punkerhead gonna take care of you today. You understand me, baby? Ooh, yeah, we don't need perfect credit, uh huh? Even with credit scores in the 500, SaveWithBruce.com makes saving money easy. Dig it? NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Mother. Welcome to WHW Monday, Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of World Championship Wrestling, the NWA, and Jim Crockett Promotions. And now let's go to the ring. Here's your co-host. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When? Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network and the man who makes it all possible, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, what's going on, man? Conrad, good to be talking to you. Hello, everyone. Hello, slapdicks all across the nation and across the world. You know, we've got some uh, fans from out in uh, England. I got a, a, a couple of requests for T-shirts from Australia. And uh, so we've got people listening to us everywhere, and I really appreciate that. I'd like to uh, start out with a personal note, if I could. Please do. Okay. Uh, this week, uh, during the course of this week, on Tuesday of this week, it is the 36th wedding anniversary of Tony and Lois Schiavone. Oh, how awesome is that, man? Isn't that great? 36 freaking years, man. She has put up with your long toenails and womanizing and foul mouth and glass coffee table adventures. How does she do it? <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Uh, I was going the other way with it. Uh, when they asked me uh, how long you've been married, I tell people, well, it's 36 years. It seems like 500. But uh, it's, uh, I just wanted to say that. And, of course, you know, I, I also, we also, and this is something else. Uh, I called this lady from California who had bought a shirt and a T-shirt. Uh, and she said, I don't listen to your podcast. A friend of mine does, but my mom's name is Lois. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine so I, if that lady knew what this shirt was all about? <laughs> so I got her a Lois Rules T-shirt. I said, uh, does your mom have big boobs? Uh and she wouldn't answer that uh, because Lois does. Well, no, Lois doesn't have big boobs. She's got immense boobs. Immense. Uh, wow. That's a word I haven't used or heard used for, for that service before. <laughs> so enough of that. Good to be talking to you. And uh, uh, another great week. we got a lot to talk about. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about uh, for this show. A lot of it, uh, a lot of the splatter of this show has fallen on me over the past number of years. Uh, the Slambury 2000. So I do want to talk about that. Well, I'm looking forward to it, but first I feel like we should follow up and do a little touch up on mayhem 1999. Did you have any sort of feedback from last week's episode? The only feedback I got was boy, what a cluster that was. And my, my only, my only response to all of that was, well, that's just the way we were. Uh, and, um, but again, 
looking looking back, it, it was certainly a stark uh, difference than what we did the year before, and it was really the direction that WCW was going. And it also showed me, Conrad, how much we change things from year to year. Right. Uh, I guess uh, in the in the efforts of trying to, uh, as they used to say, hot shot or or try to pop a crowd or do something different. There's a lot of changes going through, but you know we saw Kurt Hennig retire. Now we're going to see him in this match here or in this event here. Uh, Kevin Nash, you know, and Ric Flair have their problems in the past. And now in this event, we're going to see them uh, help each other out. So it's just a lot of changes going on to the point to where I thought there were too many changes and too many things going on. Sometimes you can do too much. And I think this show is going to prove that out. And I think Mayhem showed that as well. It really did. Uh, the, the biggest piece of feedback I got from last week's show uh, was people talking about this character that you referenced having a personal issue with you and you feeling a little threatened. Uh, I was just amazed at that story. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. It's in the archives. It's towards the end of the show. And Tony teased it as a poll topic the week before, but I honestly had kind of forgotten that Tony had a, a personal story. Uh, that's a little scary, a little out there, a little out of line, way out of line, actually. And, yeah. uh, apparently a lot of people remember this character you were talking about, and there's no need for us to say his name or anything, but, uh, I had no recollection of this whatsoever, but I got dozens of messages from people who remembered this person who apparently is back on the internet today. Yeah, apparently so. Uh, and, uh, they, they told me who he is and his name. Haven't even looked him up. Haven't even seen if he is on social media and I'm sure he is. Or if he's got an online thing going on right now, just ignoring it is what I'm doing. Forgetting about him, not going to even mention his name. If, in fact, that is it, I've forgotten about him. He's not even worth bringing up. So we're going to leave that there because you try to escalate something against people like that online, and it's a losing proposition. Well, there is no losing proposition to coming to Dallas on July 9th. It's whwlive.com. Tony Schiavone and I are bringing what happened when to the stage Klondike Bill would be proud. You have no idea the silliness that he and I have discussed this week. Crazy, over-the-top ideas to make this a one-of-a-kind show. Uh, stuff we're going to do here we wouldn't dare ever record and release. So come see us. We're going to be at three links on Elm Street in Dallas. One o'clock is when you need to be there. It's Sunday, July the 9th. What happened when live in Dallas? There's only one place to get your tickets, and it is whwlive.com. We're encouraging you to get at one o'clock uh, because we're going to be just hanging out. And the actual show is going to start at three. This will be right before the Great Balls of Fire pay-per-view. So you'll have plenty of time to come on over, have a good time, have some laughs with us. And then, of course, enjoy the show and then cruise on over to Great Balls of Fire. It's July 9th, whwlive.com. Tickets are on sale now. Three links on Elm Street. What can we expect from this stage performance, Mr. Shivani? Well, I, I'm thankful that it's not the old vaudeville days where they have the hook, you know, from the side and pull people off the stage because that probably would happen to me or you. Uh, but we're going to have a lot of visual things. Uh, we're going to tell a lot of stories, some stories that we haven't told here. We have our banner back and forth, uh, and you just never know who's going to show up at one of these events because the WWE's in town. I do want to stress what you just said. The doors are open at 1 o'clock, and from 1 to 3, every ticket is a VIP ticket, which means we're going to be talking to everybody personally, meeting and greeting, shaking hands, signing autographs, and, and talking to people. So it's a chance to meet with a lot of our people, a lot of our fans personally, which I'm looking forward to. 
and then to be able to come out and uh, do some things on stage that probably we shouldn't do on uh, online here. I'm sure in the days of uh, in the days of cell phones and video cameras, uh, <laughs> there's going to be something for posterity for this show, but I hope not. Well, I'm sure there will be. Uh, we're we're negotiating with a special guest right now who's really going to pop a crowd. Uh, we've already got some props lined up. Let me just say, this is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. If you've had a good time checking out this show, we can't encourage you enough. Come have fun with us. We're going to fraternize with you, have some drinks with you, tell some more stories, do some Q&As. And then, of course, we're going to try to get on stage and uh, make you laugh. Come see us, whwlive.com. All right, so let's talk about it. It's finally here. What you really wanted to hear, we're tracking, of course, one pay-per-view per year from WCW. 2000 is the year we're covering today. And Slamboree 1 happened on May 7th, 2000 at the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri. That's worth mentioning. I just want to make sure everybody's paying attention here. It's in Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, That will be something of note a little later um, it's also interesting that this happens right after the night, the world changed. So they kind of hit the reset button on WCW. You've got Bischoff in there. You've got Vince Russo in there and there are crazy things happening every week. There's red falling from the season, from the ceiling. I call it red because that's what WCW had to call it because of standards and practices. Is that right, Tony? That's right. How, call it blood. How, how silly is that? I mean, do, do you remember there being a meeting where they tell you, you can't say blood? I, I don't remember there being a meeting. I remember uh, Galen, who was the uh, standards and practices guy, who was a pretty good good guy, coming over to us and telling us what we could say and what we couldn't say. Uh, but not a big-time meeting as far as uh, wrestlers and production personnel were concerned. Well, you've also got lots of other craziness going on. Vampiro's in the company. You've got Norman Smiley working hardcore matches. Tank Abbott is here. Uh, you have got people delivering divorce papers from Kimberly to Diamond Dallas page in the middle of the ring. There's lots of rumor and innuendo that's now being played to the main screen. David Arquette is around because we're actually trying to promote the new movie. Uh, so there is lots of feelings of, are we going up? Are we going down? Uh, some of the nitros are being heavily papered, but we've got a movie coming out. So it feels almost like a tale of two promotions to me, Tony, would you agree with that? Yeah, there is, it is a tale of two promotions, and we're in uh, too heavily promoting this movie to show Hollywood that we're serious about making this movie big, and this is kind of what this whole thing was about. You've got lots of silliness, too. Um, I say silliness because you've got people being hit with a lead pipe and no selling it, or ran over by a Hummer, and the next week appearing to be fine, except for a little tape on their ribs that they don't sell in their match. So it's just a time when there's lots of, let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. And some of this, I think, is, is, is unfairly heaped all on Russo. But Bischoff has come out in his book several times and said that he feels like, and even on the more recent Table for Three, he thinks that what wrestling fans really want the most is a surprise, a swerve. He don't call it a swerve, but he says, I didn't see that coming. I, it was the unexpected. They want to be surprised. So it feels like this era of WCW is focusing more on What's the surprise as opposed to what makes the most logical sense? Would you agree with that, Tony? Yeah, it's more shock and awe than it is more uh, storyline-driven or, or more wrestling-driven at that time. You know, d- during this time, Conrad, we're, uh, we're more about the storyline itself than we are the actual match. And a lot of the matches, the fans who are purists 
and love wrestling matches like a Dave Meltzer and probably like yourself would probably shit at some of the things that we did. But and even in the pay-per-views, it was more about the storyline getting to the match than it was the match itself. And a lot of those storylines had a lot of surprise to it. When WCW was red hot, we were red hot because of the surprises we gave the fans every week. Kevin Nash shows up. Scott Hall had shown up. Roddy Piper shows up. Randy Savage appears. Gene Okerlund, Bobby Heenan appears. We get all these guys, Lex Luger being the first one, we get all these guys from the WWE, and that surprise each and every week is what kept fans coming back. Now, we're running out of those surprises here in 2000, and now what do we do? We do shock things to surprise the fans. That's something they didn't expect. Is that the right thing to do? Or the right thing to do is still give them good, solid wrestling matches with storylines. There's a point to where you run out of story, you don't run out of things to do, and you got to come up with crazy things, and that's what Vince Russo did, right or wrong. Yeah, and uh, I think we're going to be debating a lot of right or wrong Bischoff and Russo for the duration of our podcast. But let's talk about something that was heavily criticized. Um, Meltzer would write, and it's important to mention. Uh, Sting does an angle here leading up to this pay-per-view with Vampiro where he comes down from the ceiling. He repels again. Uh, the red drops on Sting, not the blood. And then they hang him back onto this, uh, the co- the cable again from the ceiling. Right. So Meltzer would describe that he's laying there kind of like an unconscious pinata. Anyway, he would, he would say, Bret Hart was asked by Sting before the stunt on April 17th if he had a problem with Sting coming down from the ceiling. Hart said he didn't have a problem with it if Sting didn't have a problem and felt safe doing so and had a safety line. There were many people in the company who felt it was in poor taste, but Russo was insistent that it was important to do. What did you think of this decision less than a year after his brother falls from the ceiling and dies doing the same stunt to do this situation? this repel with sting. I didn't feel that bad about that. I felt more bad about the finish of the pay-per-view. We'll get there, but okay. So I'll stop and just say, I didn't feel as bad about this as I did that. This one didn't bother me. We're going to talk the about fact it. That they cleared it with Bret Hart. I think worked. Yeah. It just feels like it. I mean, what's it going to say? No, I wish you wouldn't. I mean, then yeah, Bret Hart, well, yeah, Bret Hart would have said it. If but, he really didn't want him to. But even if he did say that, he knows they're going to do what they want to do. They're going to come try to sell him on it and make it better. I'm not saying that. I mean, if your boss comes and says, would it be okay if you kind of have to say yes? Okay. Um, lots of crazy stuff's going on in the promotion here. Kidman's working an angle with uh, Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan is wearing uh, a, a jacket that says F-U-N-B. And yep. NB stands for new blood. Um, he's taking a power bomb through a table from Mike. Awesome. Uh, chronic is beating Ric Flair and Lex Luger in a minute and 20 seconds. There's a lot going on here. So we'll talk about all of this more in the future. We're going to focus more specifically now, uh, on the pay-per-view and I can't wait to talk about some silliness with tank Abbott and stuff like that, but we'll get there one day. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the actual show itself. Uh, Kemper Arena, May, as we mentioned. And it's easy for us to look back now and say, eh. But Meltzer would write, at a time when the company needed something positive, WCW delivered the Slamboree. 
The show, paced with a, by a hot live crowd on May 7th at Camper Arena in Kansas City, combined a strong work rate up and down and good booking to the company's best pay-per-view show since probably the 99 Spring Stampede. There were no off-the-charts matches. The work and heat were there for all but a few matches. Um, he feels like it was a pretty good show. The show drew 7,165 fans. Uh, 4862 of those paid $139,000. He would write that this is a substantial money loser as a live event. Uh, The show was on track to do just 6,000 paid and tickets not just stalled, but stopped selling completely with David Arquette being added to the main event as world champion. Uh, So David Arquette wins the world title at Thunder about 10 days prior to this. Um, and it was just a happy accident. They cover that in the show. It was never intended for him to look strong necessarily. Uh, but through the goofy stipulations, they're all in a match together. The referee counts his pin. Now he is the reluctant champion continuing to make appearances saying, I'm not a wrestler. I don't deserve to be champion. And everyone's acknowledging that. I know that we're going to get crucified for saying this because lots of wrestling fans just hate everything about David Arquette being in wrestling. But from what I know, Arquette was a wrestling fan. He was a superstar in, in films. We can say he wasn't a superstar, but he is the lead actor in mainstream Hollywood movies. That's a big deal for a wrestling promotion to have that. And, and he donated all of his money that he made from wrestling to the families of deceased wrestlers. That's what I know about David Arquette. And so therefore I say Arquette got a bad rap. What say you, Tony? Got a terrible rap. Look, look, David Arquette winning the world title was silly shit. But take a look up and down at this show. We were into silly shit at that time. Right. It, it kind of worked with all the stuff that we were doing. And, you know, fans would say, oh, that was entertaining. Oh, how about Ralphus? How about the hardcore match? That was funny. And then David Arquette wins the world title. They say, what do you mean? That's the world heavyweight championship. That was a world title that Harley Race had around his belt. Yeah, fuck that. It was a work. It was always a work. No one was really a world champion. It was all a freaking work. And if you think about it from there, then you can't put a lot of heat on David Arquette. I, I, Bob Ryder said, what do you think? Do you think that is, uh, that told me uh, in a discussion we had backstage during that time. And, of course, a lot of that heat was put on me. Uh, do you think that uh, has uh, really sullied or really uh, made the world title mean less? And I went, no, no, it's a work, right? It's a program. Jesus, you know, uh, fans uh, choose, pick and choose what they think is entertaining and what they think is not. And all of a sudden, when David Arquette wins the world title, fans all of a sudden think it's real. And all of a sudden we're making it a sham because this world title has been real. And no, it's not. It never has been. And, and I love every guy who has ever been a world heavyweight champion and they deserve it. Ric Flair deserved it. Harley Race deserved it. Dory Funk deserved it. Jack Briscoe was one of the greats. But it was all a work from day one. So if you think about it from that angle, this doesn't bother me this much. Well, we will cover David Arquette winning the world title um, when we do our Ready to Rumble show. That's going okay. to happen at some point. So we'll talk I'm about it a little more. About it I know, and I want to bottle it up and save it because... I know that you're the motherfucker to blame, and I can't wait yeah, for us no, to fuck talk. fuck you. I am not. <laughs> I 
I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm part of it. Well, there we go. Okay. That's what I wanted. Just to tell the okay. truth. It won't kill you. Um, Chris Candido opens the pay-per-view retaining his cruiserweight title against the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea. Uh, in his corner, he's got Tammy Lynn Sitch, who was teasing a little strip tease at the beginning of the show. And, yeah. uh, seconding the artist, we have Paisley, who we now know as Charmel. Meltzer would write, this match wasn't good, but Candido still deserves the credit for his end. There were circumstances beyond his control, namely the other three participants. He would also continue, um, everything involving Tammy and Paisley looked horrible and hurt the match. The biggest killer was Candido pinned artist after the Tammy chair shot artist kicked out. Jay counted to three, even though artist had rolled his shoulder and the music played the guys ignored the bell and the music and the fact the announcers called it as the finish and kept going, uh, quickly went to the real finish where Candido used a pile driver and a diving headbutt. Since the crowd had already heard Candido's music, since it was cued, they knew he was winning. So continuing came off really bad. Afterwards, Paisley shoves Tammy down, uh, and then gives Candido a low blow and pulls Tammy's dress off. He continues. Tammy was wearing more clothing than any woman in pro wrestling history that had her dress torn off. So give me your two cents here. What'd you think of the match? Meltzer gave it two stars. What'd you think of, uh, Tammy and this botched finish? It was a couple of pretty good spots. Candido was a great worker, but it gets back to this. Conrad, it gets back to inexperienced people, uh, uh, Paisley and Tammy and, uh, Prince Iakea who, and again, when I talk about Tammy being inexperienced, I'm talking about just being a worker in the ring, doing a choreographed thing that if one thing goes wrong, everything looks like shit. And, and that's what happened there. Tough break for Chris Candido. Cause the kid was a great performer. What did you think of, uh, Mark Madden here doing commentary on the show? Uh, he references in this match, something disparaging about scantily clad women. Um, it's pretty edgy at a time when WCW can't even say the word blood. And when Tammy does get her dress stripped off, she's wearing, I don't know, like your grandma's bathing suit. It feels like standards and practices here are really raining down on everything, but Madden gets away with some crazy commentary on here referencing Tammy. Yes, he does. <laughs> and he got away with a lot. I, I love Mark Madden's commentary. He's phenomenal. What's that? He's phenomenal. As a wrestling fan, I couldn't wait to hear what he was going to say next. Yes. a lot of He's got a lot of heat with a lot of people because people thought he was annoying. They were pissed off at him. And I said, well, that's what we wanted you to do. He was doing his job. And he got away with a lot of shit and he would just say it and say, you know, it was like one of those things where it's better to ask forgiveness than ask permission. Right. right. Absolutely. And that's how he worked and it worked. And I think we played off of him quite well. You know, the commentary for the show, I think you could tell that Scott Hudson, Mark Madden and myself genuinely liked each other and genuinely got along and had a good time at doing this one, this show together. I think that came across quite well because I did. Liked them both uh, tremendously. Loved working with both of them. We had fun together, and I thought the commentary for this show worked. And some of the things that that Madden said was crazy, but still worked. Yeah, and it really worked for me. I enjoyed this match. I know it wasn't a barn burner, but I'm such a Candido fan. Um, I feel like he got a bad break in his entire wrestling career. Uh, But he was really the shining star here. It is a shame to see Sonny 
uh, maybe not at her former self. Um, there's lots of rumor and innuendo surrounding her and her WCW run. Uh, what can, how can you address any of those rumors or innuendo, Tony? Well, the rumors innuendos have to do with drugs and have to do with something that happened in a lady's bathroom. And I remember all that, all that going down. I always remember Tammy being very nice. Uh, and I never saw Tammy that I thought that she was drugged out of her mind, but I think we all knew that she had a problem. Uh, and, uh, I think she admitted to that. Uh, but I think the, the flip side of that was that she was sultry and sexy and looked great. Uh, and was a big star not that long ago. Uh, so it, I think it was a, a big bonus that we had her on our television programs to, only for a short period of time. Yeah, no doubt about it. I am, um, I'm sad that it all ended the way it did. And I want to play a little game here. We've talked a little bit in the past. I guess it was the first nitro. I've got a little conspiracy theory. Can I pitch this to you, Tony? Okay. I like these games you pitched to me. There was, you know why? Why is that? Because I end up getting shit on about these games and you're the ones that start this shit. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, so there was, you know, the first nitro episode we covered why my conspiracy theory believed that nitro was held at the mall of America and it's tie in with pasta mania and the lawsuit that Hogan had in his life that all centered around that opening. Um, let's fast forward here. I feel like there was a lot of rumor and innuendo that had kind of even been teased a little bit on television with Bischoff and Kimberly and DDP. And there were rumors there. Do you want to say what the rumors were? Yeah, well, the rumors were that there was a little bit of menage a trois going on. Did I say that word right? Klondike Bill would be proud. Yeah, a little bit of swappage. Let's be clear. There's. (laughs) Did you just say swappage? Swappage. These are unsubstantiated rumors as far as you know. You never saw anything of this. This becomes one of those wrestling things that gets bigger every time it's retold. No, we, you know, we, we always tried to, which I thought was kind of stupid. We always tried to take rumors and turn them into real life angles. Well, that's a Bischoff MO and, and that's, that's actually pretty smart in a lot of cases. The, the rumor that Vince sent Scott and Kevin to WCW to kill it and inject poison and yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway. Um, let's just freestyle here for a minute. There's rumors that Tammy is let go after drug paraphernalia is found in the ladies room. It's apparently discovered by Kimberly. Kimberly reports it to Eric Bischoff. Bischoff interviews Tammy. She emphatically denies it. He sends them both home. Uh, they're not happy. He orders them to do a drug test. She inquires over and over and over as to the drug test. And ultimately they come back where they were clean. Despite all, this is Tammy's testimony. Despite all of this, Bischoff still lets them go. Hmm. Now let's just get in the conspiracy time machine for a minute. Okay. If I was a conspiracy theorist, I might say that if the original rumor and innuendo about Bischoff and Kimberly were true, and now all of a sudden AOL's most downloaded celebrity is coming in to the company where I've been the centerfold and the pinup and featured in playboy and the lead nitro girl. And I've kind of been the lead pretty girl in this entire promotion, getting all of the attention. 
And now AOL's most downloaded celebrity and one of the hottest acts from the rival company just four years prior is now here. And she comes in with some baggage from a maybe prior, maybe current, but baggage and rumors and whispers about drug use. Let me just take something, find it in a bathroom, report that it was hers and get her the hell out of the way so I can go back to being the featured spot. And if I report it to this guy who I have a relationship with, wink, wink, he'll err on my side. And this is a nice excuse to get her out of the way. Poke holes in my conspiracy. Uh, well, that's, uh, you're, you're really going deep here because you're, you're saying that, uh, this paraphernalia could have been planted. Not so sure of the pair, if, if I can go that far, but I could, let me tell you this. I can see, I could logically see Kimberly not wanting Tammy there. Well, yeah. And, and so that's my Kimberly thing. Kimberly had a lot of heat, Conrad. Right. She had a tremendous amount of heat. She had a tremendous amount of heat with the Nitro girls. They didn't like her being a Nitro girl. They didn't think she could dance. And so, and, and she had a tremendous amount of heat backstage and it looked like it appeared that she had a tremendous amount of quote unquote stroke or power. So I can see her pulling this off. Maybe. I can see her being the reason that Tammy left wanting Tammy out. Did she plan plenty of paraphernalia? I'm not going to go there. That could have really been Tammy stuff. And she actually just saw it. Well, here's the thing. Did you see any paraphernalia? No, that's no, what I'm I saying. Is lady, nobody knows for sure that the paraphernalia story is true, that it really happened, that there was anything that Bischoff and Kimberly ever did anything besides high five or, or, you know, shake right. hands. This right. is all just wrestling silliness. That is, exactly. pro- that is probably a, a kernel of it is true. Yes. There was a ladies room. <laughs> yes. Both women used it. Yes. Tammy w- wasn't the most favorite person from the girls who were threatened, you know, felt threatened by their position. Yes. Kimberly had heat. Yes. Bischoff was the boss. And now I'm just using watercolor here to create storylines for the purposes of our podcast that may or may not be true. Right. But I can see Kimberly doing this. I I can. Well, I, I, I just, I, I can. And it, it, to me, it, it smacks of logic of why Tammy ended up leaving when she probably shouldn't have. Well, it's not like Tammy was moving the needle in a major way for the company. So letting them go doesn't necessarily hurt WCW. So in the end, while it may be nice to have them, they're not have to haves. And if them being out of the way makes your life or business a little easier then roll tide, right? Right. Exactly. Right. If they are problem, if they are causing problems backstage and you got the, you got the option of getting rid of Kimberly or getting rid of. Sonny and Candido, and there's a problem, you get rid of Sonny and Candido. And that's unfortunate, but that's why yes, it I, is. I played the little conspiracy game. So okay. we're not going to have a shirt next week that says pasta still rules. But I'll tell you what, Blue Apron does rule. Am I right, Tony? Blue Apron does rule, and it rules because it has ruled the Shivani family since the month of January. It's put Lois back in the kitchen. Ha ha, wink, wink. I know we've got our, this week got our uh, anniversary coming up and we're still discussing instead of going out, which we've always done on our anniversary, we're still discussing staying home and cooking blue apron because it's got fresh ingredients because it comes right to our door, easy step-by-step instructions 
and it's just made our life easier. We are empty nesters, and this comes to us at a great time when we don't have to think about, oh, what, what are you going to have for dinner? What do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want for dinner? You know, you play that game all the time with your wife. When Blue Apron comes, you don't have to worry because it's all right there. Great ingredients, fresh, high-quality ingredients, affordable because less than $10 a person per meal. You can have a great gourmet meal right at your house. Now, we want to invite all the fans to do what the Shimanis have done, and that is go to blueapron.com and check it out. Here's how you can get your first three meals free with free shipping. Go to blueapron.com slash Tony, T-O-N-Y, blueapron.com slash Tony. You love how good it feels, tastes, create incredible. And I'm going to underline this again, Conrad, home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Tony because Blue Apron is a better way to cook, and the Shivani family has found out firsthand. We have cooked Blue Apron on some days for lunch and for dinner as well. Well, I can't recommend it enough. I know that you and uh, Lois are having a good time, and I've got some of my friends at the office who are into it now. Everybody loves Blue Apron. You will, too. Check it out. It doesn't get any easier than free food. What are you doing? Go right now, blueapron.com slash Tony. How much does it cost again, Tony? It's free. Free shipping. Three meals free. So check it out. Why wouldn't you do that? Support the podcast. Go pick up something for free. Uh, I love Blue Apron, but not as much as I love this Terry Funk match. It was the second match on the card. It's a handicap match for the hardcore title. I've got to admit, I am a huge Terry Funk mark. Uh, we see him wandering around backstage. He asked some, uh, some of the staff there, where is Norman? He's got his uh, hardcore title over his shoulder. They point towards the bathroom. He barges into the bathroom, kicks in the door. He's ready to do business and he sees. A man in the catcher's mask. He's in the full baseball gear, uh, sporting all the Royal stuff to let the crowd know, Hey, we're the baby faces, but swerve. That's not screaming Norman smiley. Who's been coming out in the hockey gear and the full pads every week. No, no, that is Ralphus, the former WCW Jericho personal security member, the truck driver himself. And, uh, the hardcore match is on Norman smiley gets the jump on him. He is attacking him with a fire extinguisher. They use cardboard boxes, rolls of carpet, going through tables. Every sort of possible weapon you can use is involved here. Meltzer would write, the height of silliness was them throwing cardboard boxes at each other and selling it. As bad as it was, it was perversely tremendous entertainment. I feel like that sums the matchup, don't you, Tony? Yeah, that, that's well written by Dave Meltzer. Perversely entertaining is that what he said yeah it was it was fantastic i it was i know it's not a five-star clinic but you could show this to anybody and yes they would say oh it's silly but it's comedy it's meant to be comedy and it made me laugh i enjoyed it a great deal yeah i called uh, scott hudson uh, reconnected with scott one of my good friends for the first time in a long time <laughs> i call him a good friend i haven't talked to him in a long time but and i said scott you need to go back and watch this thing man I said, your commentary, some of the things you said that were tremendous, and we had a tremendous time calling this match. It was fun. It was at parts revolting, I think, when we saw the crack of the ass of, uh, of Ralphus and we saw his belly button, uh, and when he did the big wiggle, <laughs> that was revolting. But it was, all in, it was all in good fun. 
we're revolting all in good fun. It's kind of like what happened when? Well, that's a mouthful right there. It's hard to argue. Go back and watch this match. If you haven't already, I, I really enjoyed what funk was able to put together. He's working with a guy. Now let's keep in mind, Terry funk is a former NWA world champion back when that meant something. And, uh, he's working with a truck driver here uh, who has no professional wrestling, uh, skill or training to speak of. He's just right time, right place thrown in front of the crowd because of his crazy look. And he's paired with a guy who I feel like history has kind of overlooked this screaming Norman smiley character is fucking phenomenal. Is it not Tony? It is. And it was over big time with the fans and they love Norman. What's so over about it is if you haven't seen this in a while, whenever anything happens to Norman, you throw a weapon at him, you hit him with a chair or a box or whatever. He screams at the top of his lungs. It's hilarious. He's wearing as much padding normally as he can get. He's trying not to hurt himself. He is the reluctant hardcore champion. It's phenomenal. Um, and there is uh, something to be said about him teasing his big wiggle. He loves the dance. The crowd loves the dance. But then when he gets behind his opponent and pretends like he is smacking their hips, it is hilarious. Everybody digs it. And they tease this quite a bit. Uh, they do get some hardcore stuff in there. There's a ladder spot. Funk loves to have a ladder over his head. Uh, and then he even gets a little juice from a chair shot. Um, Ralphus is in on the action. At one point, Funk gets him hung up in the ropes and has his pants pulled down. Uh, the camera never catches it. Standards and practices doesn't want Ralphus butt cheeks on TV, but Funk knows this is gold. So he just lets him hang there for what feels like an eternity. So the crowd can just bask in all the glory. Uh, and then, you know, Ralphus actually takes some moves too. I mean, he's actually taking some bumps in this deal. And ultimately after, uh, they've thrown everything, but the kitchen sink at each other. I'm talking about chairs and tables and ladders and everything in between the finish comes. Of course, everybody listening knows what's coming. If you've watched wrestling lately, funk wins with a schoolboy, uh, two stars on the match. I really thought this was fun and would recommend people go check it out. What do you remember most about this match, Tony? Well, I remember most about this match is thinking in my thinking that Ralph is going to fucking die. Well, he was a truck driver. He's taking chair shots. Realistically, I, I don't know if Ralph has signed a waiver or they, I don't know what they gave him for doing that, but really, you know, here's an overweight, uh, more than middle-aged guy who's never been an athlete, apparently, who is taking bumps from the hardcore champ, Terry Funk, who is known to be in some of his hardcore shots, pretty damn stiff. Sure. So that, that's, I remember going through my mind, yikes. This whole fucker's going to die on us, uh, but he didn't. And I thought he, he, he came across quite well. Hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, I enjoyed every bit of it. I enjoyed the commentary, listening to it again. Uh, I thought it was uh, a amount of funny. And I think the fact that they had the schoolboy finish even made it funnier after all the crazy shit, just a wrestling finish <laughs> to win the thing. Enjoyed it. Go check it out. If you haven't already, Hey, I'm just curious. You said he drove a ring truck. How good of friends with was Ralphus with uh, Klondike Bill? Uh, they were good buddies. Uh, he didn't drive a ring truck. He drove like the uh, the big truck. Oh, the eighteen wheeler. Yeah, he was one of those drivers. Um, do you think if Klondike was around today, he'd pick up a uh, hot tag shirt for Ralphus? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I would love to see Klondike and Ralphus in action. 
What are we talking? No, let's, let's move on. Next up, we've got Sean Stasiak. And, hey, you uh, started this. <laughs> he pins Kurt Henning in uh, just over eight minutes, just under eight minutes. Uh, Meltzer would write, uh, the crowd was really into everything Kurt did on offense. Stasiak's moves aren't bad, but he's totally, totally mechanical and has the personality of a tree while doing them. Uh, Stasiak won clean with Henning's trademark fisherman suplex. I didn't know they were allowed to do clean wins in WCW. It got one star. Uh, this comes one year, not one year, but several months after Kurt lost his retirement match at mayhem 99. So I'm glad to see that, uh, he's back out of retirement here. what do you think of this match? And why don't you think Sean Stasiak connected with the audience better? I, I just don't think he had the, the personality or had the charisma to connect with the, with the fans. And he was wrestling a guy who had it all. Kurt Henning, one of the great performers. And why, I guess with no other reason is we're trying to put Stasiak over, why they had him win that match is beyond me. It, 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 it's mind-boggling. Uh, I know he's a, a second-generation wrestler. We talked about that during the commentary. But to me, as you said, Kurt's stuff was over. Why not play to that and have him go over? Don't know. I do. I can tell you something about this match that people don't know, though. What's that? Uh, and if you go back and watch, and I think it's going to be, and I, I marked it down, and I, and I wrote it down, around 38 minutes into the show, uh, something happens that is, is a big backstage story. Eric Bischoff earlier in the day had brought everybody out and said, and wrestlers and, and production people, and was showing them the place on the ramp that is going to be gimmicked where Chris Canyon was going to fall and do the big bump that night. And it was pretty well marked. If you look at the, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the ramp, there's a kind of a, a couple pieces of tape there that shows this is where he's going to fall. Bischoff said, I know you guys like the freestyle. I know you guys do things that are not basically scripted or part of your match but i'm telling you do not take any bumps here do not throw any of your opponents here because you'll throw them through and you'll screw up the finish of our main event stay away from it he was serious so at 38 minutes into the show i don't know how far into the match kurt hennig and sean stasiak go outside and hennig being the great river that he always was if anybody knows stories about a kurt hennig he was one of the greatest of all time. He picks up Stasiak to throw him on that spot. <laughs> Knowing that Bischoff's watching and, and Bischoff is, is shitting his pants in the back. And he picks him up and then his back gives out and he puts him back down. That was Kurt <laughs> Hennig fucking with Eric Bischoff because of that meeting earlier in the day. That and we all had happy. a big laugh about that afterwards. Well, I'll tell you what. One of my uh, fondest memories of the whole show, actually. Really? You didn't like what was coming next? Let's talk about what's coming next. Hugh Morris <laughs> comes out and announces that uh, yeah. Hugh Morris was a popcorn fart of Eric Bischoff and that his real name is Hugh G. Rection. Yeah, I, and, I would not want to be stuck with that name. Well, he was He immediately said, don't call me that. Call me Captain Rection. Meltzer would write, which no doubt will quickly become Captain Rectum. Um, <laughs> Why would he write that? I have no idea. 
this match goes nine minutes and 24 seconds. Scott Steiner has, uh, two very lovely ladies with him. What do you remember about these, these fine folks here with Scott Steiner? They had, they had tremendous boobs. <laughs> I was wondering if you would try to work around saying that word or if you were just going to embrace it. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say this, but holy shit. How could you look at anything but those two girls? I mean, I really was expecting, and they got involved in the match. I was expecting some, something to fall off or fall out. Just to me, it took my attention away from the match. How long have you been a 14 year old boy? (laughs) I, I I have to, I have to call it like a see it there because those girls were, those girls were spectacular. Weren't they? Well, uh, he would refer, he being Scott Steiner pronouns, pal, he would refer to this package as the freaks and the peaks. And of course the peaks, he would point to his biceps. Yeah. Um, how well did these girls live up to their billing? Uh, as I know, probably, uh, probably quite well, I would think. I don't know personally, you know, here I am, my 36 year of marriage and you are trying each and every week to get me divorced. You know, I'm pretty sure Medasia still makes appearances here or there. Um, really? we got to get Medasia to a live show. So Medasia is the one everybody really knows, but She's seconded by Shakira. Did you ever have any fun interactions with Shakira? Did you help her with her makeup, like you've admitted to doing before on the show with other ladies? No, I I would go through go to the makeup department and and always talk with the girls, and I got to know them quite well. And you know, we would do a little small talk. How are things going? How you been? How you like what's going on here at WCW? How you like working with Big Papa Pump? Are you married? Do you have a boyfriend? Uh. Here's some pictures of my kids, uh, things like that. Small talk, you know, getting to know them, getting to, to know that I cared about them as performers. And I had some good time in the makeup room. I'm sure you did. What? (laughs) What'd you think of this match in particular? You know, it's not that bad of a match. It gets, uh, two and a quarter stars, uh, towards the, um, end of the match, you would see, um, well, here's what Meltzer wrote. The finish was botched badly since Rection went for the moonsault, uh, which Steiner has to move away from. Steiner moved, but Rection's foot still killed Steiner's face, actually making it more damaging than a real moonsault. But Steiner shook it off, and Rection pretended he missed and laid there, and they went for the recliner for the finish. The rest of the MIAs tried to hit the ring, but R&B security stopped them. Uh, finally, Booker T came out, a cleaned house on Steiner, uh, what do you think of this uh, finish and the match itself? Yeah, the finish was really shitty. The match was okay. A lot of posing going on and a lot of stalling. Uh, it was a match to further an angle. It, you know, let's face it. You know, it was a, uh, and I don't want to, uh, I liked uh, Bill and I still like Bill, but it was kind of a job guy match to further the angle between Steiner and Booker T is what it was. And uh, I'm not so sure if, I mean, we saw the, uh, his, uh, sergeants down on the, uh, on the floor or his corporals or his, whatever they were. Members. Yeah. 
And I'm thinking, what the fuck is Van Hammer doing back here? That's one of the first things I thought of. Uh, <laughs> did, did, did Van Hammer have any rumors and innuendo with anybody in the office? Uh, is there something that you know you're not telling me? No, I'm not. I'm just wondering, you know, Barnett's gone. So yeah, right. How does this guy keep getting in the door? I, that's what I'm wondering because he can't work a lick. Uh, so what I'm saying is he had, he had to be doing something with that Van Hammer. Yeah. He obviously was doing. Yeah. I, I don't, if this whole match ended up being a clusterfuck, just to, and again, just to further an angle down the road, we talked about this before. Should something that furthers an angle down the road be on a pay-per-view? Should that just be nitrocentric? And then the pay-per-views give you your payoffs. That's a, that's a, that's a question that I can't answer, but it was a pretty apparent that this match was basically a squash match. Although Scott did selling, did do a good job of selling some of Hugh Morris's good stuff, but it was basically a Scott squash match to further Scott Steiner against Booker T for better or for worse. All right. So, uh, let's talk about what we've got coming up next. It's Mike awesome. And he goes to a no contest with Chris Canyon. They go about 12 minutes. Meltzer would write these two put on the best match of the show. They were hurt because there was a big fight in the stands earlier in their match, which took the crowd away. Tony, uh, do you remember this fight in the crowd in particular, or is there a fight in a, a WCW show that you remember well or better than others? No, I, I ignored them all. I had to. No, I, I had to ignore crowd fights. I had to keep the attention on the ring. And obviously when there was a crowd fight, the attention went away. I couldn't watch that, Conrad. I had to stay focused on the match. You weren't, so I watching, ignored all you of weren't watching the match most of the time, though. You were just plugging the silly shit. So why couldn't you just turn around and watch the fight and plug the silly shit? So I was just shit? reading script, and I didn't have to watch a match because I wasn't selling shit, right? I'm just saying. Thank you, Dave Meltzer. But, um, uh, what do you think but, of Mike Awesome? I got to tell you, I'm a mark for Mike Awesome. I, I first saw him in tapes of FMW back when I was doing some tape trading in like 96, 97, and I thought he was awesome. So when I finally see him in ECW, I'm a big Mike Awesome fan. I loved what he did there. I thought what he did with WCW was kind of silly at times, but pretty fun. Uh, I feel like he could have done a lot more in the business than what we actually got to see him do. Yeah, I thought he was very, very good as well. But to me, Chris Canyon was one of the great performers. Mm-hmm. You know, we called him the innovator of offense. He did some tremendous stuff. Tremendous bumps, new looking stuff that was great. That was something we hadn't seen. And Meltzer's right. This was the best match on the card by far. And the fans were into it with the exception of the cat fight or whatever. They had the drunk fight, the redneck fight going on up on the left there. And you think I should turn around and call and ignore the match. <laughs> Meltzer would write, they were on the ramp and awesome set up a spot where he'd power bomb Canyon off it. But Kevin Nash came down and interfered which led to Billy Kidman, Vampiro, Shane Douglas, Chris Candido, Ric Flair, and Sting all in a big brawl. The lack of a finish hurt three and a quarter stars. Um, what did you think of this match being as good as it was, but then you've got all these guys in a brawl, and it's not setting up a pay-per-view. This is the pay-per-view. But I just said that. It's, it's further in an angle, and it, there should have been a finish in the match. They could have had all the run-ins after the finish. And still got to finish out of it and still further to an angle. No, I agree. I, I agree with all that was written about that. I agree with you about the performers. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, 
we're just doing seemingly clusterfuck after clusterfuck on top of a match, and the matches are meaning nothing. Next up, we've got Lex Luger beating Buff Bagwell in nine and a half minutes. Um, Dave would write, this was the first time ever where Luger, who turns 42 next month, actually looked old in ring. I don't mean old as in his match was bad because they've been bad forever, but facially and even his body looks like an aging bodybuilder as opposed to a bodybuilder. It's the unavoidable reality, but it's hit me hard nonetheless because Luger always looked younger than he was. Backstage, Liz hit Vince Russo with a bat and ran to ringside. As she ran out, she hit Buff, but Buff got the bat and hit Luger twice in the ribs and delivered a neckbreaker. Liz got the bat and hit Bagwell with a very weak shot, and Luger put him in the rack for the finish. After the match, Chuck Palumbo, just back from New Japan, came out wearing the same style boots and trunks as Luger for his gimmick as the new total package. Joining Bagwell and doubling on Luger and put him in the rack while Bagwell grabbed Liz and carried her backstage. Good Lord. There's a lot going on here. Who booked this shit? Okay. A couple of observations on this one about Luger. Luger did look old, but you know why he looked even older than he should have drugs. No, the because Scott Steiner and. Stasiak had come out earlier with tremendous bodies. And then Luger comes out third. After looking at those physiques, you're not going to look as good as those guys. So in comparison, and, and I'm, I'm, re- I'm really serious about this. Scott Steiner comes out and does the peaks. And Sean Stasiak comes out and looks the way he looks. And then we've seen Luger all these years. And we look at Luger and we go, yeah, well, he doesn't look as good as the other guys. So I think, it, I think the comparison's hurting here. What do you think about the, um, the casting to make Chuck Palumbo the next total package? Yeah, uh, they were, they were pushing Chuck before his time. We gave Chuck the kiss of death in that, uh, on that show because we talked about Chuck being on WCW Saturday night and WCW worldwide, two shows that no one gave a fuck about. So if he was on those shows, no one gave a fuck about him. Why have the shows? Uh, because TBS, a six Oh five was the standard time. And because we had all these clearances and syndication, it just seems like if, if you know, Hey, nobody gives a shit about the show and being on it will hurt you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, killed, it was the kiss of death. Uh, well, why have it? I know, you know, I know because I had to, I had to produce those shows. I got to tell you, gave a uh, shit about I didn't and like ended up. They ended up, only thing they ended up being was, here's what happened this past Monday. And here's what's going to happen this coming Monday. That's what those shows end up being about. And oh, by the way, before we talk about what's happening next Monday here on WCW Saturday night, let's take a look at a match with one of the guys from the power plant. And that's what those shows ended up being. And no one gave a shit about them. Next up, hard body Harrison versus high voltage. (laughs) Um, what's your favorite? Chuck Palumbo match. Uh, God almighty. I have none. <laughs> you know, he seems like a nice enough guy, but he just feels yeah. like he's miscast here. Like you said, they set him up to fail, putting him in this spot. Sure. And, and, you know, his, uh, he was kind of thin in the legs. I, I, so I, I, he looked good, but he didn't look tremendous. It's an upper body business, brother. 
So I've never really understood why right here, Lex Luger is calling himself the total package. I mean, he's not even referring to himself as Lex Luger. He is being referred to as the total package. When I think of the total package in 2017, I think about direct TV, man, for only $50. Now you can get over 150 channels and that includes four receivers and a high def DVR. And you can make it happen just by calling fellow wrestling fan, our good friend of the show, Matt. Matt can hook you up right now at 850-294-0887. I want to give you that number again, and it's important to mention that you don't have to live in any specific area. Matt can get you this great deal no matter where you are at 850-294-0887. And I feel like it's worth mentioning, if you already have AT&T service, you can get an even better deal. So you get a great discount because you're doing business with both DirecTV and AT&T. And maybe you can't have a dish in your yard or on your building, or you just don't like the way they look. No big deal. DirecTV is now streaming live DTV for as low as $35 a month. But check this out. If you've got AT&T, you can get it down to just $25. Matt's even got a hookup offer on the NFL Sunday ticket, all in time for the 2017 season. You're going to save time, and you're going to save money, and you're going to do it every single month. Just for our listeners, Matt here, he's going to make sure that you have no installation fees, up to four TVs, and you get that DVR for free. Check it out right now. Give him a call. It's 850-294-0887. It's 850-294-0887. And be sure to tell him that you want the total package from WHW Monday with Tony Schiavone. Uh, let's talk about the next match. This is something that people have dreamed about for a long time. Would it ever happen? Would Shane Douglas ever get Ric Flair in the ring? He had called him out in ECW for seven years, calling him Dick Flair and saying that he was past his prime and holding people down, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he gets a win over Ric Flair in eight minutes and 46 seconds. Rick is in his street clothes. Why is Rick wearing street clothes? It's part of the millionaire's club and it's part of him, you know, uh, doing things differently. It didn't work at all. It did not work at all. I had to think in my mind when I saw him running, what is Flair doing in his street clothes? Then I listened to our commentary trying to explain why he was in his street clothes. To me, it looked like Flair didn't give a shit about the match if he's in his street clothes. Yeah. I mean, he's out there in dress shoes. Right, right, right. So if, if this is an important match for Flair, an important match that Flair is finally going to face Shane Douglas, why wouldn't Flair have the role, the whole gimmick, and come out and do all of his stuff? He had some pretty good. He had some pretty good uh, mic work there. That was funny, and he, he did a slap towards ECW and everything. Uh, but to me, the, it was disconcerting him in his in his street clothes. Um. Meltzer would write, "Okay, Flair shouldn't wrestle with his shirt off, but he looks ridiculous in the dress pants and shirt." Trunks and a tank top or t-shirt would have been far more effective. Flair only wrestling on special occasions when it has meaning would be even better. Would you disagree with that? Not at all. What's great is he wrestled eight more years. Yep. I know. Uh, Meltzer would write, this was a good match. It makes perfect sense to build flare up since he's supposed to get a title match on the next pay-per-view by jobbing for Douglas on this one. Douglas in an interview said he was going to franchise Flair's ass. When he said it, it sounded like he was going to start a chain of restaurants called Ric Flair's ass. <laughs> I know that's not funny, but it is funny. Um, 
Meltzer would write, the fans were really into it. They traded hard chops. It was probably the best Douglas has looked in years. They traded figure four spots. Um, what do you think about this match and it finally happening? We're going to get to the silly finish in a minute, but this is something that had been an internet feud of sorts and a tape trader feud of sorts for a long time. And then it happens. Here it is. What'd you think? I, I wasn't into all that. I wasn't, I wasn't into the, the ECW slash internet slash tape trader type stuff. So to me, it had no excitement value at all with the exception of knowing Shane was a great performer and knowing Rick was a great performer. I thought it'd be a good match. Meltzer so, didn't hate it. He gave it three stars. So it wasn't his least favorite match. And the finish right. was kind of interesting. I guess if you're into that. A masked guy in a sting mask comes out and hits Flair with a bat, and Douglas cradles him. Since the announcers were screaming it was Russo, it clearly wasn't. So right. it was no surprise when Flair was screaming for Russo to come back in the ring, and then the real Russo came out for the five minutes. It turned out to be David Flair, with the announcers acting shocked at a son turning on his father, as if we didn't see this angle how many times last year. David and Russo pound on Rick until Nash comes out, and he throws one knee, and David was dead. Daphne hit Nash with a low blow and Russo destroyed Nash with the bat later in the show. Nash was backstage. Fine. What'd you think? I thought Daphne is beautiful. I love that. There's all this silliness and you just can't help, but talk about the boobs. Well, no, I'm not talking about the boobs. Daphne, uh, you know, she shrieked and screamed and had tattoos and wore the pink hair, but she was really a good looking woman. <laughs> Who's better looking, Daphne or Ray Mysterio Jr.? <laughs> Daphne is. Tom, uh, she, Tom Zink she, she, or look, Daphne? Let me up the ante. Comrade, once again, it is a clusterfuck of an angle on a pay-per-view. I, that's the direction we were taking. That's what we were doing. The match, the match really meant nothing, but the aftermath did. David turning on his dad, the reaction from the announcers, Daphne getting involved. And you know what we also didn't we have a nut shot in that thing too? We we yeah. were nut shot crazy. And bat crazy. Oh, we were nut shot freaking crazy. So it, to me it was all just everything as an announcer, if everything kind of got confusing, then I'm sure it got confusing to the fans too. And we started to do a lot of what I thought was wrong back then as announcers. I'm gonna take the blame as much as anybody else. We started selling the uh, what are you laughing about? I'm just laughing at the way this has to be pitched to standards and practices. Like, can you imagine when they get a run sheet? Okay, bro. So here's what we're going to do, bro. We're going to dump a bunch. Of, we're going to dump a bunch of red from the ceiling on this one guy, bro. And then we're going to hook him to a cord and we're going to yank him up. Then this other guy's going to come in, bro. He's going to punch the first guy in the ding dong. And then the second guy, bro, he's going to take a rubber bat and he's going to hit him with it, bro. Like, can you imagine pitching? Oh, and bro, we're introducing a new character. His name's not Hugh Morris. His name is Rection. And, uh, he's got a first name too. It's Hugh or whatever. Uh, but we're going to have, uh, one of our bus drivers come over. We're going to pull his pants down and show his ass to the live crowd. Not the camera, bro. I know I can't show the camera. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a lot. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right there. I bet you, I know. A lot of shit went down that standards and practices were not aware that was happening. So did they Again, sign it off? it goes back with asking for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. 
So they're okay with red and they're okay with ding dong shots. They're okay with bats. Clearly there's lots of bat shots. Are the, are they not okay with, are they okay with Kevin Nash being shown later in the back drinking a beer? Could you tell that was a beer? Well, Kevin Nash is drinking it. Well, okay. All right. Then I, I, I didn't see a label that says it was a beer. So, okay. So we're going to pretend it's a kayfabe beer. It's it's up to your own interpretation there for crying out loud. Oh yeah. It was probably a Zima. My bad. Um, (laughs) so they haven't, do you think standards and I want to hear what it sounds like. I realize this is the Tony show, not the Bruce show for Vince Russo to pitch standards and practices on Hugh Morris's name change. So he would say something like, okay, so Galen, we're going to change his name to Captain Rection. Captain Rection is what we're going to call him, and that's how he's going to come out and present it. And Galen would have said, Captain Rection? Captain Rection? Uh, okay, I, I think that works. And then he goes out and he says, huge erection, and Galen goes fucking nuts and runs in to see Vince, and Vince goes, well, I, I guess he was doing it on his own. I guess he just kind of winged it, freestyled on his own. We'll tell him not to do it again. And and a lot of that happened. Well, it did. So there you go. Um, do you think the fans in the crowd, I mean, I know the heat between uh, Douglas and Flair. Do you think the fans in the crowd, by and large, knew the history here or not so much? No, not so much. There was There was a, there was a group of you know, rowdy fans that chanted ECW, but overall, I don't think they did. Um, let's talk about the next match thing. Did and ECW Vampire. have a nationwide show? Not at this point. No. Yeah. No, right. no, so they there. did. They did by this point, but no one cared. Right. It was, it was good stuff. I mean, they did some crazy shit, but it wasn't mainstream. What was mainstream was WCW and, uh, and WWE. By this point, you know, he had been off the TV so long that, it wouldn't have mattered. They would have never cared to show old clips from 95, six or seven when he was there. I mean, I guess he was there in eight and nine, but they wouldn't have shown any of that. Um, okay. So let's talk about the next max, uh, sting and vampiro. They go six minutes, 49 seconds and Meltzer Wright, the good taste award, at least for the moment went to WCW because sting didn't come from the ceiling on what would have been Owen Hart's birthday at camper arena. Sting worked really hard, even doing a plancha over the post. He still doesn't sell much for Vampiro, except when Vampiro hit him with a lead pipe. Sting got the pipe and delivered a stinger splash with it and hit two reverse DDTs for the pin, two and a half stars. Um, I kind of appreciated that they were trying to do an Undertaker-like feel with Vampiro in the graveyard yeah. stuff and more supernatural and just kind of... Um, I don't know the dark side, so to speak, I could appreciate that they were doing that, but it doesn't feel as hokey when the WWF does it as when WCW does it. Would you agree with that? Why do you think that is? I don't know why that is. Am I wrong? No, no. I I, look, I I thought I I think the video leading up to this was pretty cool. Showing the red, showing Vampiro coming out of the ring, showing the graveyard hitting sting and sting being in the grave. And I thought Vince Russo did a great job of it making Vampiro's character really mean something. It meant something more now than it ever had. But what you're saying is it seemed hokier than the WWE. 
And why was that? Because we were perceived as a cheap knockoff of the WWE. That's one of our downfalls. I'm not blaming Vince Russo for that at all. I, Vince Russo came in, and this is what he did, and he did it well, and he worked hard at it. But the perception by the nation now was we were doing things that they were doing, but not as well. And so we were cheap knockoff of it. And that's why you see this as a cheesy WWE imitation. So match number one, we have a chair shot. Match number two is a hardcore match where we have everything. Uh, match number three is clean. Match number four, there's outside interference. Match number five, um, there's all kinds of outside interference um, with Mike Awesome and Canyon. Match number six, there's a bat. Match number seven, there's a bat. Match number eight, there's a lead pipe. Match number nine, there's a thermos. When Hulk Hogan gets the pin over Billy Kidman, that's right. These two guys had a pay-per-view match. It goes 13 and a half minutes. Um, Eric Bischoff is the referee. Meltzer would write, Horace Hogan came out with his uncle. Uh, Both worked hard, and if you just accept that Hogan's offense looks terrible and he doesn't take bumps, it was good. If you judge Hogan by the standards of a prelim wrestler, it isn't quite so good. Hogan did take the first hurricane run of his career, which was actually more impressive than the pre-sawed table spots or all the blade jobs. Hogan whipped Kidman with the belt until Bischoff took it from him and gave the belt to Kidman who used it. Uh, the entire match still screamed out because of the size difference. And these two are totally miscast in this angle. Hogan had Kidman pinned a few times, but Bischoff wouldn't count. Bischoff blocked Hogan from doing the leg drop. Hogan hits both Bischoff and Kidman with a chair and pulls out two tables. It was sort of funny. One of the tables was already broken and useless. Kidman hit Hogan with two weak chair shots and Hogan juiced. Bischoff held Hogan for another chair shot. And of course, Hogan ducked. Hogan power bombs Bischoff through the table that was functioning. And a table seemed to magically appear at ringside. And Hogan had a hell of a time getting it under the ropes. Kidman gave him a low blow and put Hogan on the table, but Hogan moved and Kidman splashed to the table. Of course, Hogan ran out and grabbed the unconscious Bischoff's hand and counted to three with it. Two and a half stars, a Hulk Hogan match where there's tables and belts and blood. And he takes a hurricane Rana and this happens in the year 2000. I can't say I saw this coming. What'd you think of the match? Two and a half stars is what Meltzer gave it. Yeah. I thought the fans were really kind of into it. You know, we talk so much about fan reaction, and, and Meltzer will always say, you know, the fans didn't give a shit, the fans died or whatever. I thought the fans were really into it, and I agree. It, it looked really out of place, Hogan facing Billy Kidman. I thought it was one great comment by Mark Madden when Hogan put that last table up, and Madden says, where do all these tables come from? Which was, which was what we were all thinking at the same time, and he just kind of verbalized it. Uh let me ask you this in reference to what uh, Dave Meltzer said about Hogan taking the first hurricane run of his career. Has Dave Meltzer seen every match that Hogan's had? Oh, I'm sorry. He took lots of hurricane runners. What's that? Who would have given him a hurricane runner? I don't know, but Hogan worked a lot of shows up in Minnesota that weren't on <laughs> tape. You know, don't say something like this when you don't know. Gorilla Monsoon probably hit him with one. <laughs> Oh, uh, I, yeah. And, and you know, uh, the, for the match started and they, they fucked up a, a spot 
It looked ugly. Uh, but uh, I thought both guys did quite well, and the fans were into it. Okay, the fans were into it. But seeing Hogan with all those tables in the ring, not wearing the colors, uh, was just fucking goofy, man. Just fucking goofy. Um, talk me through this. Did you know, or when did you know, rather, about this whole situation with Kidman working an angle? With Hulk Hogan. When did I know about it? Yeah. I, 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 I absolutely can't remember when I knew about it. What are you leading to here? Well, no, I'm not. I, there's no conspiracy theory. I'm just wondering how it was. Uh, did the guys feel like, hey, this is Hogan's chance to show that he's not really holding everybody down. He's going to work a program with a guy who hasn't really been in the main events, give a chance to build new stars and put some new shine on somebody else. Was it Hogan's idea? Did Vince Russo convince him to do it? Did Bischoff think it was a good political move? Do you know any of the backstory as to how this comes about? I, I do know that that Russo convinced him to do it, and Hogan agreed to, to work a program with Kidman to help put more shine on Kidman. I think this was Hogan being a pro about it. You know, Hogan always had the final word in what was going to go down. And he, I think Hogan, look, Hogan was old school. Uh, he knew he was who he was, and there was this uh, the new blood against the Millionaires Club, and for Hogan to go against Kidman and take some of Kidman's bump, like the first time he ever took a Hurricane Rana, was a big deal to put Kidman over, and it did, even though he beat him. Um, what do you think about the way it all came off? Hogan doing this. F U N B sort of character doing tables, getting blood. Are you, are you, do you think this is something that Hulk deserves credit for? Or are you going to err on the side of what a lot of wrestling fans online would say, which is this is just bullshit, political Hogan stuff. Bullshit, political Hogan stuff because he did chairs and did F U N B and all that stuff. I, there's a lot of people out there who don't give Hogan any credit for anything he does. I'm not one I know of them. That. I watch wrestling because of Hulk Hogan. I'm a huge fan, but I'm saying there's a lot of people who feel like Hogan did this to show it just doesn't work, brother. These little guys just can't draw brother. You know, you got to no. get a big nasty guy in there with me. People don't want, they don't buy it. They don't, it's just ridiculous. I'll do it, but I'll do it just to show you that it doesn't work. No. If Hogan thought that, he wouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have. If he thought that line of thinking you were talking about, that match would have never happened. That program would have never happened. Again, it's the it's the uh, hatred for Hulk Hogan that has been online for these fans that was perpetrated by a lot of these dirt sheet writers that hated him as well. And that's what it is. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about what it is in the main event. Jeff Jarrett is, uh, in the main event and he's facing David Arquette and diamond Dallas page. I can't believe this is a thing. Meltzer would write Jeff Jarrett won the most prestigious title in the history of our sport. The WCW strap over champion David Arquette and diamond Dallas page in 15 and a half minutes in a three decker ready to rumble cage match. So first of all, what everybody wants to know, did Klondike Bill build this cage? 
No, I don't think he built this. I think he probably had a hand in it. I don't think he was the architect behind it. I'm sure he had some, he did some welding and he did some securing of the, he, he was part of the crew, put it that way. But to say that Klondike built this cage himself, no, he did not. Uh, what did you think of this match watching it back? It, it feels uber dangerous to me yeah. when, when they are on top of the first cage, uh, around the second cage and they're just walking around at any moment, something bad could happen. And these guys take a real bad fall. No question. I, I was, and I remember back thinking about, you know, this is fucking nuts. And the, the one side of the cage fell off and that was not by design. And when that happened, I'm thinking if that falls off, what else can fall off? Right. Or what else can collapse? You know, it's a little, they had, they had the, uh, the flooring, if you will, or the tops of the cage, a little bit better secure than that uh, triple cage that we saw with Kevin Sullivan. Remember back at the, what was the great American bash or whatever? Remember that yeah, yeah. How crazy that thing was, it was a little bit better secure than that, but, uh, it was frightening. It was frightening that anything could happen. And then you had, you know, you had David Arquette up there as well. And who knows what in the hell is going to happen with him. Uh, but the, the flip side of that is I thought the fans were into it. Didn't you? No, I mean, it was, um, the crowd didn't seem like they totally hated it, but right. The, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I, I didn't like the whole thing watching it back even because as they're walking around this cage, I can't help but remember a year ago, almost to the damn day, Owen Hart fell in this same building from a great height and died. And now we're back walking around a cage where right. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but a lot of people would argue that Owen repelling from the ceiling a year prior was an unnecessary risk and not what wrestling was about. This too feels like an unnecessary risk that wrestling's not really about. And I kind of forgot as I was watching this back that after they do their silly finish. And what I mean is eventually this top cage is the guitar cage. As silly as that is, there's just guitars in there. There's every other weapon of choice in the middle, including the kitchen sink, which is a wrestling staple. They even do a spot where they do a table spot on top of a cage. Um, not that that matters, but it's just interesting to me because how do you really stabilize it? You've got to go past where it would normally stand. It's just interesting. Uh, but they do every possible weapon in the middle. And then when they finally get to the top, Arquette actually beats them up there and he does a swerve where he hits DDP with the guitar. Jarrett does another guitar shot and DDP falls. Therefore, Arquette is no longer a good guy. Now he's a bad guy. He has swerved as is everybody else on this entire pay-per-view. And now Jarrett is the champ, but Mike awesome comes down, teases that he's going to continue to beat up, uh, on diamond Dallas page. Like he's going to give him an awesome bomb on the cage when Canyon makes the save, but that doesn't last very long because he literally throws Canyon off of the cage onto the ramp that we talked about earlier in the Mr. Perfect match. And there's a huge bump and they show a lifeless body or what appears to be a lifeless body. Oh my God. He's sprawled out legs going one direction, feet going the other, uh, arms are flailing splat collapse. And then we cut away and we show Jeff Jarrett celebrating on top of the belt. Like nothing happened. And this is the same town and the same building at the same type of function, a wrestling pay-per-view where a guy really fell and died. 
now we've thrown a guy off of something and pretending that he is horribly injured in front of the same fucking fans. Yeah. I feel looking back on it now, I feel very bad about being a part of that. It just feels like it's unnecessary. I, really do. I mean, yeah, I, I really do. And I'd like to say, and like to think because I've always loved Vince Russo and, and Eric and work for them and, and would do anything they want. I'd like to think that they weren't thinking about Owen when they did that, but how could you not? I mean, how could you not, how could, how could you not draw the comparisons to what really happened with Owen? And what was a work, obviously, with Chris Canyon. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what we were thinking back then. I feel ashamed to be a part of it. And I sold it like he was really, really dead, which is bad as well. The uh, sell job that I did at the end and Mark did at the end and, and Scott did at the end was doing what we were supposed to do. But it was all wrong. So what became a very entertaining pay-per-view at the end was in reality a tremendous bump by a tremendous performer but at the wrong venue on the wrong day on the wrong day uh the match got three and a quarter stars in the observer so he liked the match and i guess considering all the gimmicks it kind of it was what it was um, yeah they they performed very well yeah they D- did ddp and and jeff jarrett can put on a good match and right. mike awesome and chris canyon we just said earlier had the best match on the show so you've got a lot of great performers in here and our being involved he didn't really wrestle at all he just did the swerve at the end so he comes out in his ridiculous ready to rumble outfit it's a great cross promotional tool it is what it is we'll cover it more his involvement on the ready to rumble show Let's talk about the bump. Uh, Meltzer right. Awesome threw Canyon off the top of the cage onto the ramp, which was heavily gimmicked, so he wasn't hurt seriously taking the stuntman bump. They stacked cardboard underneath the ramp to soften the blow uh, as the where he was supposed to hit, which was marked. Of course, from that height, any major flaws in the execution or even landing in a bad position wouldn't have been pretty, but he did practice it three times the day before without a hitch. Page and Jarrett were doing a run through the day before and page took a really bad bump, which is why he was taped up and they had to fly in his doctor to work on his shoulder and back just for him to be able to work this match. After the show went off the air, Canyon was selling it huge with EMTs, etc. They didn't practice due to the ramp and how long it took for them to make it look like it hurt and then carry him out and live. Since it took so long, it left a lot of people with a bad feeling. The reaction to this was interesting. Most fans watching on TV loved it, or at least opt for the bump. Every email we received of the people who were there live mentioned it negatively because it was camper arena. And they were the same fans who saw Owen Hart die falling from the ceiling. And this felt too similar with them actually telling like he was maimed far too much of an exploitation of his tragedy. Actually at the time I thought they were copying Mick Foley. And that because of the big bump on the ready to rumble movie finish, this was just to distract from the fact that they were doing the same main event finish on two straight shows. And I figured somebody had to take a big bump. The Owen Hart thing had been discussed at least a little in reference to this, which sort of made it sad. I didn't have a problem as much with the paralysis claim on television the next day, even with the obvious comparison to Darren Drozdoff, because the hospital angle with DDP getting beat up was so three stooges 
that it isn't like anybody could take it seriously anyway. Um, what did you think? You know, in hindsight, this pay-per-view overall is kind of an interesting thing to cover because there's so much going on in WCW. You've got the business is kind of up from a mainstream exposure, but it's really down as far as ratings and houses and gates, but you're, you've got a movie star here and you've got a movie coming out and you're involved in it, which would have been a blessing at any other time in WCW's history, but it feels like it's too little too late, even despite and really think about this card and who all's on it. Chris Candido, Sonny, Terry Funk, Mr. Perfect, Scott Steiner, Mike Awesome, Chris Canyon, Buff Bagwell, Shane Douglas, Lex Luger, Sting, Vampiro, Tori Wilson, Hulk Hogan, DDP, Jeff Jarrett. You've got every major star you could possibly hope to have. Like Those are all the ingredients you need for a huge pay-per-view success. But for whatever reason... It, it I mean, looking back, it, it feels like it just wasn't enough. No, it's because we were doing too much and we, we, we needed to scale back. I, I, I think we, you know, I thunder fucked us over big time. Uh, and I think we needed to scale back. We did not have the resources, uh, nor the, the manpower to do all this shit and everything got, it was just too much going on at that time. And nothing meant anything. Why watch a pay-per-view when everything was happening on Nitro? Why watch Thunder when everything was happening on Nitro? And why not do what you're supposed to do in the business, which is point everything to a pay-per-view and make that the blow-off? But no, that was not it. We wanted to drive people to Nitro and finish the story. So I think, I think everything was confusing. There was too much going on. And on top of all that, Conrad, this to me is the beginning of and maybe not the beginning, but the furthering of a, of some of a, of a bad trend in wrestling. And that is, it's not about wrestling anymore. It's about high spots with tables and gimmicks and who can do something crazier and who can do something more outrageous. Eric Bischoff said, you talked about it earlier. They like surprises, but we're getting away from wrestling and we're getting into crazy table shots and things, which has ended wrestlers careers. We know wrestlers now have been trying to do crazier and crazier things when they, when their bodies can't, can't deal with that stuff. Am I right? No, I agree. You know, it's one of those deals where, um, hell cactus Jack can't walk now. Hardly. Yeah. I mean, he just had hip replacement. Some of these bumps are unnecessary, but I get that you, you feel like you've got to do something to attract, but it's clearly not working. We, no. we always cover the business side. Slamboree here had 65,000 buys on pay-per-view by comparison, the prior year. So 99 at super brawl, they had 485,000 buys, right? So just throw that in your machine here, 485,000 times $30 and then 65,000 times $30. It is a huge financial swing. Right. Um, and I, and I got to tell you, when I look back on this, I think the thing that really caused all of this, as far as the failure of this pay-per-view, it's not Vince Russo and it's not, you know, Sonny and drugs in the bathroom. And it's not, uh, nobody caring about Sean Stasiak or huge erection or big bumps. 
or Ric Flair wrestling in his clothes or too many bat shots. I think we can go back to one singular event and say, this is the reason nobody bought the pay-per-view and that's buff Bagwell's kissy face on the poster. <laughs> on a scale of one to 10, look, how the excited reason nobody bought this, this pay-per-view. Okay. You didn't need to anymore. Yeah. You had everything you wanted on nitro. Absolutely. You didn't need to anymore. And that's why the buy rates went down. But uh, nothing on you went down when you saw this Buff Bagwell poster. What do you think of this kissy face Buff Bagwell poster? Is this your favorite wrestling poster of all time? It's one of it's one of my top five, I think. The kissy face poster uh, and the pennant. Uh, and uh, Buff, uh, Buff, well, you know, Buff was one of those guys like Tom Zink and like uh, Rey Mysterio and a couple other guys. Very, very attractive, handsome young man. Had a nice smile. All of all-American face. Who's uh, who's in charge of figuring out what to put on these posters, and why is Buff Bagwell making a duck face worthy of a wrestling poster? I, uh, you got to ask the marketing department back then, the merchandising people. Uh, we had a guy named Casey who was our merchandise guy. Casey got fired, I think, uh, and I don't know who uh, was in charge of merchandise after that, but. Uh, I don't know. We had, we had a lot of slapdicks in the front office who made decisions. Um, how smart was Western Union in promoting this pay-per-view? It feels like, to me, this is a target audience for Western Union. Really? Well, because it's very expensive to send money with Western Union, and only people who make poor financial decisions would use that service. And if you bought this pay-per-view, you are not making good financial decisions. And so you're the target audience, man. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with all that. Oh. <laughs> I'm a dick. Sorry. Well, yes, let's, you let's go to Twitter, man. We, uh, we invite you to go ahead and uh, participate and ask us some questions, man. What do you want to know from Tony Schiavone? So we actually went to Twitter on May 30th. Uh, you can do the same at WHW Monday is where you find us. And we wrote tune in next week for what happened when Monday with Tony Schiavone on Slamboree 2000, have a question, just reply to this tweet. So let's scroll through some tweets here and, uh, give some questions. Uh, Michael Hemsworth wants to know whose idea was it to have Mike awesome, uh, throw Canyon off the cage. Do you know specifically who would have put that idea out there? That would have been Vince Russo's idea. He wrote the whole thing, and, and he had, you know, he had a uh, he had a committee with him by that time. But it would have been Vince Russo's idea, because Canyon did uh, crazy things and things we hadn't seen before. And again, we want to make it bigger and better and surprise the audience. So Russo would have been the man. Late to the Nitro Party asks, "Who was your favorite person on the show, and why was it Kimberly Page?" Uh, that show. Yeah. Uh. Kimberly was one of my favorite, but my favorite people on the show were the freaks with Scott Steiner. Roll tight on that. Josh Kuhn wants to know if you have a good Ralphus story. Uh, no, I, I don't have a good Ralphus story with the exception of that. Ralphus would do anything we ask of him, hmm. which probably was wrong for us to do that. Anything. He was willing to do anything we ask of him. And he was a legitimate ugly fucker too, man. Legitimate. Uh, what you saw what he really was. I mean, there was no makeup or no gimmicks on that. He had 
rotten teeth, not much hair, big belly, dumpy ass, and the Audi belly button. Stink Eye on Twitter wants to know, was the name Total Package a tribute to Robert Fuller? <laughs> uh, no, it was not. <laughs> Stink Eye? Stink Eye, go fuck yourself. That was pretty good. Okay. Um, what have we done to people? I didn't do what it. What has this podcast done to people? Have we brought up the worst in people? We're I, talking about jump rope academies. We're talking about coffee tables. Oh, man, what, what have we done? Uh, Josh on Twitter wants to know, did Hogan and Kidman really hate each other? Uh, I, I don't know. I, there seemed to be that, that Kidman was kind of the new school kids that did not appreciate Hulk Hogan. I got that feeling. Whether they really hated each other or not, I don't know. If they really hated each other, I don't think they would have had the match they had. Uh, Moondog Smash wants to know, how awkward was it backstage with Flair and Douglas? Uh, not awkward at all, as far as I know. They're professionals. A lot of this is... A lot of this is a work. A lot of it is a work. Sure, there is some there's some heat, but a lot of it is a work, and people don't understand that. They don't. They don't get it. James wants to know, in your opinion, who had more authority in the company at the time, Bischoff or Russo? Uh, I think uh, Russo did at the time because Bischoff had left and come back. Josh Kuhn wants to know, why no Bobby Heenan, and why was Scott Hudson getting more mic time than the voice of WCW, Tony Schiavone? Uh, Bobby Heenan had been, had been fired, and that's another story for another podcast that I really want to address. Uh, and Scott Hudson uh, was kind of a second play-by-play guy. I liked Scott so much, I thought he added to it. I'd, I'd let him talk as much as he wanted uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, I talked too much. I was on every show and my voice, I was losing my voice. So having Scott on there helped me out tremendously. And I love working with him. Uh, so Mark Arnold wants to know what your thoughts on Sonny's Spanx outfit was. Hmm. Did they have Spanx back then? Or is that, that's kind of been just recent, isn't it? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't do research on Spanx. I do it on old wrestling. Okay. I, uh, I liked anything Sonny put on or took off. Uh, I got a, do you have Skype? Yes, I've got Skype. I'm going to, I'm going to smarten you up off air. Um, Tony on Twitter says, did Canyon ever try to see the button on the fur coat? (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of people that tried to see the button on the fur coat. No one has ever seen it, especially since, uh, 2000. You included me included. I know it's there. Just don't know where it is. Um, dark uh, wonder you laugh, you laugh, you laugh, you son of a bitch, but wait till you're in your fifties. Dark, uh, wonder boy says how many buff Bagwell pennants were actually requested and why are the leftovers in your closet? Leftovers in my closet. <laughs> they have nowhere else to go. And I give them out to girl scouts when they sell cookies. Uh, it's what every girl wants. A little, yes, bu- little, little buff in her stuff. 
Hey, Michael yeah. wants to know, were there any competitors hesitant to do the triple cage? Uh, not that I'm aware of. No. They, they all would have wanted to be in a main event and would have done anything to be in a main event at that time. Paul wants to know why did Hogan and flair not wear ring gear? Was this yeah. an order from WCW? It's not an order from WCW. It's part of the angle. Part of the angle of the Millionaires Club. Uh, Rassler82 wants to know what you thought of this version of the new WCW logo. I hated it. Uh, however, I understood what Eric was looking for. Eric was looking for an identifiable logo that when you saw it, you knew what it was. Like the swoosh for Nike. Uh, this, I don't know how many uh, people came up with different things. I don't know who decided on this. I didn't like it at all uh, because I thought it was too complicated. I thought it, but then again, nobody else had anything like it. So I guess it, it did a good job at identifying us. That's what you want from a logo. Easily identifiable. Uh, that's what Eric was looking for. I don't think that's what Eric got. It sucked. Uh, Michael wants to know who decided on the commentary team and the combination of Tony, Mark, and Scott. That would have been the booking committee. And that would have been uh, Vince, uh, Vince Russo. I had a lot of heat in the booking committee around that time. Why is that? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, in 1999... During the summer, uh, I was I, – I, the All-Star game was in Atlanta, the Major League All-Star game. So I took Matt and I think Chris uh, to the All-Star uh, convention to where they you know, collect cards and wherever. During the day, I said, fuck it, I'm going to go to this thing because I'm a baseball card collector. We went to this thing, and I got a call during the course of the day from Craig Leathers. And Craig said, I just want you to know that the booking committee is considering removing you as an announcer. And I went, oh, yeah? He said, yeah. He said, don't let them know I, I told you this, but you got a lot of heat with the booking committee about your commentary. I said, okay. So I went to Russo about it. Russo said, don't worry about it. He said, as long as I'm with the booking committee, you're going to be an announcer for us. Some of the guys are, are, are harping on your commentary. Some of the guys are upset about your commentary, and uh, it's just been brought up a number of times. Uh, again, it goes back to this. When things are starting to go downhill, you're looking at everything as a reason why. Uh, I really think that the person that was behind me or behind moving me out was Terry Taylor. I really think that. I don't know for sure. Uh, I don't think it was Ed Ferrara. Not so sure if Ed was still there at that time, uh, but uh, you know they moved Scott in. They had moved Scott in one time. Uh, Scott did a couple of nitros because Eric thought I was burnt out and moved me away. Uh, the the fact is, I, I thought Scott was a great announcer, and I had no problem with what he was doing. Uh, but uh, the booking committee, I guess, thought there was too much Tony on TV, and they were probably right. And at times they thought I was burnt out and I wasn't yet, but we're getting close to the time that I was later in the year. Uh, so 
that's the best I can relate that story to you. And that's why we had the three-man crew. The to guru, pick up Tony when he dropped, he's, when he dropped. The guru wants to know what happened with Big Papa Pump's freak Shakira. Great googly moogly. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to find out too. Do you know? Uh, no, I don't know, but I'm sure somebody listening does know. We would love to hear from you. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. He is at Tony Shivani 24. Um, JBL scene fan wants to know was killing the company really worth coverage in USA today. Apparently JBL scene fan thought everything was going great in WCW and then Arquette won and the company died. So there's JBL scene fan. What do you say to JBL scene fan, Tony? Uh, if, if you think that killed the company, then you have no idea what was really going on in our company. That's bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Kenneth Coker wants to know if Deborah has puppies, what does Ralphus have? <laughs> Ralphus has mud flaps from a Kenworth. Mud flaps from a Kenworth. Yep. I've never even heard of that. Okay. Is that worth throwing in my Google machine or are you going to tell me what that is? No, Ken, you know, Kenworth, uh, uh, Scott, Scott Hudson mentioned it on the, uh, mentioned it on the, the match. You go back and listen to it. You know, his, uh, his overlap, his overlap, Uh-oh. Dunlap disease. I see Dunlap, like, yeah. Okay. Looked like mud flaps on a 18 wheeler. I see what you did there. His boobs were kind of like mud flaps on an 18 wheeler. Okay. Well. Uh, we would encourage you to go vote on next week's poll. It's easy to do. All you do is go to at WHW Monday on Twitter, and we've got one show left before it's time for us to go ahead and do our four horsemen episode. If you're out of the loop, we encourage you to catch up, man, go to facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday, and you'll see that we're actually giving away copies of the four horsemen book. And we asked you last week. To go ahead and like our page, it's WHW Monday on Facebook, and then share that post, and we would announce a winner here. We had more than 400 entries, and uh, we're going to pick a winner right now. Now, don't forget, you can pre-order this book at whw.midatlanticgateway.com. It's whw.midatlanticgateway.com, and only one person is going to win the book this week and one person next week, but tune in on June 19th. We're going to cover the four horsemen here with Tony Schiavone, and we're going to give away four copies of the book, but you can go ahead and pick up your copy right now, whw.midatlanticgateway.com. And I've got good news for you, Tom Dillon. Tom, you have been selected to receive the four horsemen book. All I need you to do is go ahead and send us your shipping information, and we'll get that copy right out to you. Our great friends David Chappell and Dick Bourne over there at MidAtlanticGateway.com are sharing all of the old Crockett memories. So if you haven't already, check out MidAtlanticGateway.com. But this book in particular is going to be an awesome companion piece for our Four Horsemen episode that we're going to put together for you on June 19th. Uh, But next week, and this is what everybody's really here for, the end. It's the end of our pay-per-view run. It's 2001. And we're going to do this for you on Monday the 12th. We've got three pay-per-view options for you. Normally we have four, but WCW went out of business after March. So there's only three for us to choose from. Let's run through it. You can vote on this poll right now at WHW Monday. And wow, what cards we have to discuss here. Poll topic number one is Sin. We've got Chavo and Shane Helms, Reno and Big Vito, the Jung Dragons taking on Evan Courageous and Jamie Noble. 
Ernest Miller taking on Mike Sanders. Team Canada, which is Lance Storm, Mike Awesome, and Elix Skipper with Major Guns taking on the Filthy Animals, which is Conan, Ray Mysterio, and Billy Kidman with Tigress. Ming taking on Terry Funk and Crowbar in a hardcore title match. The Natural Born Thrillers of Sean O'Hare and Chuck Palumbo with Mike Sanders taking on the Insiders. That's Kevin Nash and DDP for the World Tag Team titles. We've got Shane Douglas taking on General Rection in a First Blood Chain match for the U.S. title. And Totally Buffed, Lex Luger and Buff Bagwell take on Goldberg and Dwayne Bruce. Goldberg <laughs> and Dwayne Bruce. That's a no DQ match. And in our main event, Scott Steiner takes on Jeff Jarrett, Sid Vicious, and a mystery man who winds up being Road Warrior Animal. What do you remember most about WCW Sin from Indianapolis in January of 2001? Major guns. Well, they brought out all the big guns for that one when you get a guy out there like Dwayne Bruce. Super Brawl Revenge is poll option number two. This took place in February in Nashville. Only 4,300 people checked it out. Here's the card. Uh, Shane Helms took on Shannon Moore, Kaz Hayashi, Young Yang, uh, Jamie Noble, and Evan Courageous. This was to determine the number one contender for the Cruiserweight title. We've got Hugh Morris in the wall. Sean O'Hare and Chuck Palumbo take on Jindrak and Stasiak. Chavo takes on Rey Mysterio. Rick Steiner and Dustin Rhodes. Totally buffed. Take on Brian Adams in a handicap match. Ernest Miller takes on Lance Storm, and this is for uh, the title to see who will be WCW Commissioner. Chris Canyon takes on Diamond Dallas Page. DDP takes on Jeff Jarrett. And then Scott Steiner with Medasia and Ric Flair takes on Kevin Nash in a retirement match. So lots going on there that I don't remember that much about. What do you remember about Super Brawl Revenge in February? I don't remember a damn thing about it. I don't remember half the names you're giving me here. And I think that was probably one of our problems. Well, let's keep going. March. Lack of star, lack of star power. March 2001. Here we are. It's the last one. WCW Greed. What an appropriate title. Uh, yep. Let's see how many of these you're excited about. Jason Jett taking on Kwee uh, Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo taking on the Filthy Animals. Stasiak takes on Bigelow. Team Canada of Lance Storm and Mike Awesome take on Conan and Hugh Morris. Shane Helms takes on Chavo. O'Hare and Palumbo, the Natural Born Thrillers, take on Totally Buff, Luger, and Bagwell. Ernest Miller takes on Canyon. Booker T is in the ring with Rick Steiner. Dusty and Dustin take on Ric Flair and Jeff Jarrett. And then in our main event, a Falls Count Anywhere match for the World Heavyweight title. Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner takes on Diamond Dallas Page, and this happens on March 18th, just a few days before WCW would close its doors on March 26th. Uh, what do you remember most about WCW Greed? I remember knowing that it was the end. I remember being completely freaking burned out. That's what I remember. Yeah. Sad day. It was a sad. Probably as sad as the uh, final nitro. I'm I'm kind of interested to go back and just listening to how fucking bad I was back then. You were pretty bad. Let me just tell you, I watched this okay, pay per view you very this much week. Uh, Slambury. I didn't hear that comment from Scott Hudson because you were so bad that I had to just turn the volume down. I mean, it was just easier to just watch with. It was like a silent movie. And when, and when I had Norman and Terry Funk out there, it was kind of Charlie Chaplin-esque anyway. Right. Um, so, yeah. Well, here's another option. You're, when, you, when, you, when you're not uh, 
cool on what I'm saying and you don't want to listen to me, the other option is for you to go fuck yourself. I think I'm going to do that right now because as I look at the time, I think it's about that time. It is about that time. And ladies and gentlemen, here we've got another added match at Slammery 2000 and just signed. It is Conrad Thompson and Ralphus in a belly bump match. Yes, one-on-one. They're in a belly bump. Here comes Conrad down. He's got Madeja with him. And here with Ralphus comes Sonny. Oh, my goodness. Sonny, let's watch Sonny and Madeja, and let's not worry about these two slapdicks belly bumping because we're out of time this week on What Happened When. See you next week. Stop.